We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And check out their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can check out old archive shows there as well. Ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, hey, gentlemen. Good, good morning, Scott. Good all. Yeah, thanks. Starting things off with tax prep nightmares. I know it's coming. It's that time of year. Yeah, Everyone's looking yeah. for their tax slips that are yes. missed or lost and they're starting to go and see their tax preparer or doing it themselves. And it's funny, you know, this reminded me of a story of a client of mine who uh, uh, worked at uh, the HSR mm-hmm. for years and had a buddy at the HSR that would do the taxes for it's him always every a year. tax buddy. There's a, there's a tax yeah. buddy, isn't there? Twenty bucks do my tax. Exactly. Yes. So and then Every spring, you know, I would ask him to bring in his tax stuff and we'd review where he went. And he said, yeah, but you know what? I'm glad because I think you need to take a look at it. I'm not sure I, if he was done right. But he might not but be But he might not latest. be right up on it. <laughs> so sure enough, for two years in a row, the, like there was a problem yeah, each time. Yeah. They had to, they, they got reassessed twice. And uh, so finally he gave up on Buddy and, and he's going to a, a more formal tax preparer now. But um, there, was a, there was a great story that was shared uh, in the newspaper recently and talking about a taxpayer and I'll just I'll give you a bit of the background of the story we'll call him Mr. X and Mr. X was a salesperson mm-hmm. for a well-known electronic store in Ontario which won't be named <laughs> and um, his earnings were primarily from commissions right so as somebody who's employed under a commission structure you do have some latitude in terms of being able to write off personal expenses etc we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second so this is going back to 2007 he reported commission earnings employment income of $44,781 he claimed expenses of 26,571 wow amounting to 59% of his employment income and that ended up that created a refund that uh, of all the taxes that had been paid and deducted from his tax return or from his employer that year. In 2008, the following year, he reported $45,600 of income and expenses of $25,012, a total of 55% of his employment income. What possibly could he get expenses <laughs> for he, so much going to a store? He, he, also, <laughs> he also claimed a rental loss of $9,241. And so in 2008, once again, all of the money that had been deducted, all the income tax that had been deducted from his pay was refunded to him. And uh, so basically, you know, if you're an employee, we know that you don't have any deductions available to you. But as a commission salesperson, there, def- there is some flexibility. Mm-hmm. You can deduct reasonable expenses incurred to earn the commissions if you're required by your contract of employment to pay those costs directly and you were ordinarily required to carry on your employment duties away from your employer's workplace. Okay, so those are the two main criteria to be able to to do that. And the form that we're all familiar with is the, um, I believe it's the T2200 form, (laughs) self-employment form, exactly. You seem to know that one, Scott. Yeah, exactly. So Do you obviously, guys need an assistant? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the key problem in Mr. X's case here was that uh, his tax preparer 
was very, very, very aggressive. And he met his tax preparer. Yes. <laughs> he met his tax preparer. Do you through, have his number? Through friends yeah. at work. <laughs> through friends at work who were using him. They also used him to file their returns. And the tax preparer deducted costs used to. Uh, Sorry, the tax preparer deducted the cost of a used car purchase huh. by Mr. X. And def- definitely a, a car purchase is a capital asset. You can only depreciate it. You can't write off the whole cost. He it deducted the cost of mutual fund purchases. Not sure how that's related to his employment expense at all. It didn't make sense. He wrote off traffic tickets. That is not, that's, a, a, um, that's not a deductible expense. He wrote off home internet and satellite costs, which were personal expenses. He wrote off uh, $4,700 of non-existent expenses, including $2,884 claim for boots and gloves. Hmm. <laughs> that's a deduction. And, Does uh, the store not have a roof? That's, <laughs> <laughs> it's up and north. obviously, the, yeah. the boots and gloves were not a requirement of his contract of not employment. Part of the uniform. So on and so on and so on. So basically, you're, you're getting the picture here. Also, uh, Mr. K's tax preparer, on this, this is a shock, he was subsequently sentenced to house arrest for failing to report 524000 of his own income oh between 2006 and 2009. So a very, very aggressive tax preparer, to say the least. But popular. So, <laughs> he had, five, yeah. had 500000 of income in three years. Yep, not too bad. Yeah. I mean, he was doing the right, he was making some good money. Yeah. At the end of the day, Mr. Mr. X was denied all, virtually all of his employment deductions. and the rental loss. And in addition, he faced gross negligence penalties. So what can we learn from all this? Basically, number one, choose your tax preparer carefully. And, uh, you know, I remember years and years ago, I had... um, had some, someone referred a tax preparer to me, though this person would be good for our clients, et cetera. Well, it didn't take very long after a couple of meetings with clients had gone to see this individual, the, the report's coming back. I'm not really sure they're doing a good job. And so sure enough, there was errors, et cetera. So we quickly fired that person. But it's not easy to find somebody who is diligent, who is um, trustworthy, and who knows the information. You can't go wrong with a CPA, uh, a chartered professional accountant, and they are bound by strict rules of conduct and and um, basically, it reduces that likelihood that you're going to be dealing with an unethical tax preparer. So choose your tax preparer carefully. Key one there. Big refunds should raise questions. You know, you, sometimes you might, some cases you might be entitled to a large refund. You put in a big RSP contribution or something like that. But if you're getting, if you're getting a tax preparer, uh, just because you, just because they get big refunds for people, mm-hmm. I think the red light should go up. The red flag should go up and, and you need to make sure, you know, why you're entitled to a large refund. Okay. So that's a key thing. And that was part of the problems with my, my client from the HSR. Yeah. He said, I'm getting this big refund. I'm not sure why. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Understand your tax return, and that's the that's one of the key things here. The judge in Mr. X's case stated that while taxpayers are not expected to be tax experts, they are expected to make reasonable effort at ensuring the accuracy of their return. Mm. Um, number four, don't be a leeming. Just because some of your friends are using the same taxpayer, uh, don't let that convince you that it's all well and you should use the same taxpayer as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's funny, I've, I've seen people get caught up in, there was a charitable donation scam going on a, a number mm-hmm. of years ago where people one. were buying um, medical drugs to be donated to a third world and they were paying, you know, a thousand bucks for the drugs and medications. But then when they were donated, they were getting a receipt for $5,000. So the jacked up to the market, a a fair market value of the drugs in that third world. And, uh, 
that that quickly uh, got ictionated by the um, mm. CRA, and people ended up having to repay those taxes. Plus, it also kind of red flags you for future uh, tax preparation, too. Does that happen if you get a red flag like that? Does it mean that your name will come up again? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. nobody will ever say that, but yeah. I, I believe it's true. Yeah. I know, you know, just talking to a client of mine, he uh, he did get red flagged once, and uh, he did owe a little bit. It wasn't even a lot. Yeah. And he got audited about every other year, and they kept finding just little bits. Yeah. And it was like, you might as well what just keep annoyance. going to the bank. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like for the government, it's like yeah. easy pickings. Why do I want a fresh one when I can keep going to this guy and I know yeah. I'm going to keep getting some money? Yeah. So yeah, it does definitely uh, come back to you, yeah. aren't you? Hmm. Uh, make sure that your tax preparer has identified themselves on the return. Hmm. So this is a big red flag as well. So in this case, Mr. X's tax preparer deliberately left his name off page four of the tax return. Hmm. So he did not identify himself as a, as someone who had received Anonymous. compensation to prepare the return. Oh, so anybody who receives compensation yeah. to prepare a tax return needs to identify themselves on page four of the tax return. Big red flag if you don't see that. So if you're preparing tax returns and not reporting it, that's pretty much a red flag. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and making $500,000 exactly. in three years. doing it, yeah. Um, we talked about the uh, the T2200. So your employer needs to sign uh, the T2200, an accurate T2200. And, and again, lots of times people are entitled to employment deductions, but only if your contract of your employment requires you to pay for certain costs. Your employer needs to sign that form T2200 as proof of this. In Mr. X's case, he presented more than one version of the signed T2200 to the court. And each of them was contradictory, which created a lot of confusion. So that <laughs> oh was basically thrown out as well. Um, the next lesson in all this, avoid willful blindness. So the gross negligence penalties, uh, this is where, you know, basically you're sort of taking advantage of the, the CRA system and you've, you've gone way beyond the normal. Uh, but in gross negligence penalties, they can apply to you if two conditions are met. Number one, there must be a false statement in your tax return, and Mr. X met this condition. And two, you must have knowingly or under circumstances amounting to gross negligence made or participated in, assented to or acquiesced in the making of a false statement. This includes willful blindness. That is looking the other way when you should be asking questions about your tax return. Mr. X didn't ask questions when he should have and that's where you got into a lot of troubles mm -hmm. here. So, uh, rule of thumb, you know, find yourself a good tax preparer. And what, when you think about the cost, what does it cost to get a tax return done these days? Yes. And, it, you know, it obviously you could pay a lot of money and you could pay very little money. I, I'm suspect if you're paying 20 bucks or 30 bucks, you know, you're not going to get a professional who's looking over this information and is well-versed on CRA rules. If you're paying around $100 a person, I think you're now probably accessing some kind of level of professionalism. You know, 200 bucks for a couple, thats that, I don't think that's unreasonable today. Um, and I think generally it's money well spent. Yeah. As we can see, you can, it's easy to run into trouble. The headaches of having to come up with information after yeah, the fact and yeah, send in additional back. stuff, being yeah. reassessed, being red flagged, as we talked about, are those really worth it to save yourself 20 bucks or, yeah. or 50 bucks in terms of preparing your tax return? Probably not. No. Yeah, or even 100 And it's interesting. I find people will trust people more when they get a refund. 
They're doing a good job. They must be doing a good job. He's doing a great job. Something in it for me. He, I'm paying him money. He found me. He and and again, there's that blind eye. But if you owe tax. Oh, he must have done something wrong. That's right. There had to have. <laughs> He's not very smart. He's not very good. I got myself a poor tax preparer here. So, yeah, and it's and it's interesting when you're looking at taxes. It is. It's yeah. You can do it yourself, um, but it, it doesn't take much to miss something that will cost you a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it might be the income splitting button, which is very prevalent now, or even a deduction. Um, we're, we're switching income between spouses, between uh, dividend income, one person taking all the dividend income. But again, for the average person, they're just making the money, giving all the slips, here's my bag, mm-hmm. um, print out the return, and go ahead and make it. And again, it's a, you know, it's not bad an idea just to Google. Yeah, You'll find, I'm sure, in that, ins- that situation Andy just mentioned, if you Google this person's name, I don't think you see really good things that will yeah. pop up. <laughs> Good point. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. 7165. And don't forget, you can ask a question via the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Simply hit the listener inquiry button. Real estate versus the stock market. This is an ongoing uh, discussion. Yes. yes. And real estate, uh, I don't have to tell any listeners out there, um, look at their house values in the last uh, few years and yeah. they have just rocketed. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a to a certain extent, it's mainly a GTA experience right now because yeah. you're actually getting negatives in such places near like Ottawa, Montreal, or, or flat returns. Yeah, um, Calgary. Calgary's negative at yeah. this time. Vancouver um, actually finally had a negative after, be- but they started taxing foreign money. Yeah. And I know off air, we were talking about the, the foreign money coming in, and that seems to be propping up the real estate around here. Mm-hmm. And you can certainly see in terms of, you know, particularly Asian money seems to be coming in mm-hmm. more than any. And it's, uh, is that going to always keep it going? Mm-hmm. And what about, and, and we're finding multiple buyers and I'm getting a lot of clients, you know, late in the game in the last year or so saying, you know what, I'm looking at buying a rental property. And that way, you know, at least when my kids are old enough, at least I'll have a house for them. Mm-hmm. And there, and there seems to be, uh, if I don't buy it now, when will I, it's only yeah. going to go up so much. And that's usually at the tail end of a bull market in terms of the real estate market. Mm-hmm. But who's to say? It's yeah. it's defying gravity right now. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody can believe certainly the prices that are going up. But at the end of the day, if you did get a rental property, and let's say you say, I'm going to buy a condo and it's going to cost $500,000. Well, and I'm going to rent it out. No problem. Well, if you borrow that, if you borrow 400000 and you had to put $100,000 down. Well, just as an example, in one year, if there was a market correction in the real estate market, and some people say, well, the market's never gone down in real estate. Uh, that's definitely not the case. I know firsthand, I bought my house in 1990. By 1992, houses in Burlington all dropped 25%. Mm-hmm. I know it seems like a million years ago, but since 2000, it took about 12 years just to get back to even. To come back. That's the key too. Yeah. It's not so, not, not so much how quickly it drops, but how much it takes to get back. Exactly. Recovery time. So you, you, you look at this and you say, okay, I'm going to borrow money and I'm going to buy a, a, a piece of real estate. 
And if it goes down, and this $500,000 property, let's say it goes down 10%. Mm -hmm. Again, that's just a minor correction. Considering it went up 25% in the last year, that's not even giving up all the gains it did in one year because that's how hot it's been. Well, your $500,000 property would be worth four fifty. okay? Well, you put in 100000 That's your down payment. So if you sold it in one year, and we're not recommending you put it, it's a short term, but there are some people speculating right now, yeah. trying to flip again. So you're even getting that, owning multiple units. If you sold it in one year, you would be down to $50,000. You put in 100 Yeah. So you put in 100 and it's now 50 You lost 50% of your money, uh-huh. okay, in one year. And that's what leverage is. It, it accentuates the ups and also accentuates the downs because yeah. the, the market only went down 10%, but your investment went down 50% because you, you only put in 20% down. Now, let's say it's your own property and forget about renting it out and getting in, hopefully collecting your mortgage payment. You sold it in one year, okay? You, you couldn't afford it. Again, it, you put in 500000 It's worth four fifty, but you also had to pay $12,000 in interest costs at 3%. So in fact, you actually had a negative 62% return in one year mm-hmm. because of leverage. Yeah, And that's what I'm actually most concerned about. It's, it's not the people that are staying in it for the long haul. Because even if it was, you know, you own the property, you're living on it, who really cares? If you want to move later, well, you're going to buy another house. So if the market goes down, well, the other houses would go down too. It's actually not a bad idea at that time to buy a bigger house mm-hmm. because the bigger house would have even dropped even more. Yeah, Same percentage, but dollar amount would have dropped more. So let's say in a year, your house would have just broke even and you decide to sell. Now, there's always real estate fees, potentially, if you don't sell it on your own, and land transfer tax, which is getting very expensive. Yeah. Okay, But taking that out of the equation, just the interest cost is $12,000. So if you broke even in one year, you still lost... 12% on your investment. Right. Okay. Now, the other side of the coin, and this is what everybody's just loving at this point, if the market goes up, and again, your 500,000 home goes up to 550, you sold it, well, good deal. You put in 100, you made 50,000, you had to pay 12,000 for the, the mortgage payment. So your net return, you'll, you end up making 38,000. Mm-hmm. So your net return is 38%. So that's kind of the the risks or the rewards, if you will, and you're getting a lot of people looking at the rewards. And, and this time, uh, this is where you're starting to see, you know, seminars on real estate, on commercials about real estate. Um, a lot of people getting in the real estate in terms of us uh, being real estate salespeople. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're getting a ton of those now mm-hmm. it, it, to the point that, well, um, you know, in school teachers, I'm also a real estate agent on the yeah, side. Exactly. Now I got the summers off, I'll sell yeah. some real estate and quite often they're actually making just as much money, if not more, yeah. selling real estate on the side. And nothing wrong with that. It's just that you know it's a hot market when this is happening. Yeah. Okay. So the other option is let's say instead of buying a house, you just took the $100,000 and you invested it. And it didn't do anything particularly well, but in one year... You're at 5%. So let's say you got a 5% return. In one year, your 100000 is worth one hundred and five. But also, if you're renting, you're not paying, your rent is normally the same as a mortgage payment, mm-hmm. but your repairs aren't as high. You're also not paying a condo fee yeah. on top of that. And your insurance to insure the place isn't there. But let's say there's no condo fee. Simply, you had normally just general maintenance in the house is another 200 a month. 
and insurance is an extra 100 a month. So that's $300 a month that you're saving by renting. So you can find a place at the exact same amount as your mortgage payment. Well, that's 3600 that you could have added to the pot. So in one year, you would have $108,000. You invested 100, so it went up 8.6%. Not too bad. But if you did that for a period of 10 years, it just keeps going, going, going. So you'll end up accumulating you know, a fair bit of money. You'd end up with $208,000 in 10 years, all your money. So it is another way to get wealth, but it's not leverage. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's not, you're not borrowing to invest. And in borrowing to invest, whether it's a mortgage or investments, it really does increase risks and on both sides. And everybody loves talking. Again, nobody really complains when it's an up, but boy, you've seen, and you've seen major corporations go bankrupt because mm-hmm. of leverage, mm-hmm. because they can't afford the payment and yeah. the market's down and the and it's a fire sale. Yeah. And if the market ever turns the other way and they have to sell, um, having to sell real estate isn't easy Yeah. Um, when it's not a hot market. Yeah. Right now it's as good as it gets. Yeah. It's, a, it's certainly a, a seller's market. But when it's the other way around, it says, well, you know, I had to market down 10%, 20%. Well, you think about how much money is now eating away what you invested. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there's my real estate discussion. The next is my top 10 questions on tax-free savings accounts. Okay. Okay. Is the tax-free savings account... This isn't a quiz, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's going <laughs> to... Is the TFSA the best option? Depends. There you go. Good answer. There you go. That's the answer. It depends on your tax bracket. Okay. If you're in a high tax bracket, you probably should be looking at RSPs first. Yeah. If you max that out, uh, definitely, you know, considering the TFSAs for, uh, definitely is an option. What if you have kids? You might want to think of the RESP mm-hmm. before the TFSA. In fact, I would always suggest that as an edu- when you're getting 20% free grant money, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what about debt? We've talked about people having a lot of debt right now. Well, if you've got credit card debt or high interest debt, I would for certain be paying off high interest debt before a tax-free savings account. Mm-hmm. It's a no-brainer for me. Um, on the same token, if you're going to put your TFSA in a savings account, I saw one just last week. They were making 0.4%. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Pay down any debt before that. Yeah. Okay. There's no debt other than maybe 0% financing on a car. But yeah, it's you should be investing your TFSA different. And you can still watch the limits. Okay. Is, is it the best option? You got to watch the limits. I have had a few people caught in the trap where they've gone to the teller and they say, oh, have you considered a TFSA? And they say, you got you know, 30 grand in the bank account, you should put in a TFSA. Never asking the question, how much do you have elsewhere? Yeah. And so then they over-contribute. Um, what happens to the TFSA when you die? Well, there, it turns out there's three answers to that. You can just put in beneficiary, and, it w- and all the money is cashed in, it goes to beneficiary, and it avoids probate. Okay, so there's no probate cost, which is, depending on, is, it's at least $5 per thousand, or it could be as high as one point fifteen dollars per thousand, mm-hmm. depending how big the estate is. Anything over fifty thousand dollars of your estate is one point is one point five percent. If you don't to put anything, you just put a state. That's another option. It would then go through your will. Mm-hmm. Not a bad idea. Um, if you've got a fairly complicated will or lots of beneficiaries, you know, really, at the, you you don't want to put seven beneficiaries perhaps on your TFSA. So you may just run it right through the will, pay the probate tax, and that way it's, the executor is you know, fairly distributing the assets. But the big one here is to make sure that your spouse, if, if, if you're married or a common law spouse, is the successor holder. And 
that's what you really have to make sure you, so check out your TFSA, make sure it says successor holder if you're married or common law. And therefore what happens if you die or your spouse dies, the, you simply take over the account. Right. So if you've maximized your tax-free savings account and you're at 52,000, your spouse is at 52,000, you died, she would automatically take over your 52,000 and it would be 104,000 right now, mm -hmm. even though she's maxed out. And that's the key there is to make sure it's successor holder. Um, can I simply, number three, can I simply reset the TFSA room? Well, that's interesting. This is people want to, they, they basically have messed up on their TFSA and they want to say, well, I want to kind of get it right back to where I started. Well, what happens with a tax-free savings account? There's some people taking some very high risks, thinking, oh, I'm going to buy this penny stock. I'm going to put in $10,000. If it goes to 100000 it's all tax-free. Yeah. Hey, it's easy. This is great. And I've got this hot tip. This is a guaranteed shoe-in. Well, next thing that shoe-in is a shoe-in that you lost all your money. Mm -hmm. Well, you cannot claim capital losses ah, on a tax-free savings account. Makes sense. Because you're it, not paying anything. You're not paying any. So you, you, you not only if you if you made 100000 it'd be tax-free, but if you lose the 10000 you invested, you do not get to carry it. You get, do not get to claim that loss. On top of that, when you cash, it's not worth anything, you've also lost that tax-free savings account room for life. Uh. So if your limit, right now the limit for lifetime limit is 52,000, um, starting 2009 till now, if you've maxed that out all the time, you, you would have contributed 52,000. Well, if you went, put 52 grand in and you lost it all, well, you've lost that $52,000 opportunity for tax-free growth. Right. You cannot get it back. Number four. Is there a penalty for holding dividend stocks in a tax-free savings account? Well, kind of. And why I say kind of is if it was outside your RSP, you would get what's called a dividend tax credit. And if your income was under 40000 a year, then you're going to pay tax on it anyway. The, the dividend tax credit would offset all the tax, and therefore, there's really no advantage in the tax-free savings account if you wanted to compare apples to apples. You may want to sh have some interest-bearing investments that you would have paid tax on mm -hmm. in your TFSA. So you want to really be careful on what types of income it has. It has. And uh, you may want to consider um, potentially foreign funds that have dividends because they don't, they don't qualify for the div dividend tax credit. Mm -hmm. So if you've got something else in there, then that would work out a little bit better. Um, what about, uh, can you save capital gains tax? on your TFSA? Well, absolutely, you can, the nice thing about TFSAs is you can transfer money around mm -hmm. and any gains you get, it, it's like the old corporate class structure that isn't that old. It's like it was just put, a, put on the shelf as of January 1st of this year where you can move money from one investment to another and, and as long as it's under the corporate class umbrella, you didn't pay tax on, on the capital gain. The same now applies to TFSAs and always has. And now we're getting a larger amount between spouses, 52,000 each, that's $104,000. Yeah. So now you're thinking, well, if I'm gonna put in things that can earn capital gains, I can rebalance it. There's never any capital gains issues, kind of like the corporate class. So it is a really unique product that way. What's the problem of having my US stocks inside my tax-free savings account? This is kind of an interesting one. Um, as a Canadian, you 
you are, and you're not a U.S. citizen, okay, that's also makes it a little easier from a TFSA. And there's a lot of complications having a U.S. citizen owning a TFSA. Problem is the U.S. does not recognize a tax-free savings account. Right. They recognize RSPs. Mm-hmm. So they understand that if you have a U.S. stock inside an RSP, whatever dividends it makes, they're all tax-free. They don't ask for do anything what about it. But if it's an R, a TFSA, they're going to withhold 15% of for withholding tax. And normally there's an offsetting deduction. And I'm not sure if that actually happens in a TFSA because you're not paying tax. So it's kind of tricky. I would not recommend owning U.S. stocks within the TFSA. Right. Okay, that it just it's going to very much complicate things. Um, go talking about stocks, should I transfer my stocks into my tax-free savings account? Well, yes, you can. You can transfer your stock. So let's say you held a stock Royal Bank as an example, and you want to transfer fifty thousand sh- dollars worth of Royal Bank into my TFSA. A lot of people think they well, they're gonna they don't have to pay the capital gain. It's just a transfer. Yes, you do. You still have to pay the capital gain. So if you paid twenty grand for it, it's now worth fifty. This is going to trigger thirty thousand dollar capital gain. Right. <clears throat> the other side of it, you don't get to trigger a loss. This is the part that's totally unfair. So if you put in a hundred grand into Royal Bank, it's only worth fifty, and you go move it into a TFSA, you don't get to claim that fifty thousand dollars you lost on it. Hmm. So what you need to do in this case is you sell the Royal Bank shares. Wait 30 days. Oh, then claim the loss. And then move it to, yeah, you claim the loss Mm -hmm. and then move it to the TFSA. Mm -hmm. And that way you get your cake and eat it too. You get the loss and you get the money. And then hopefully it it rebounds and you get tax-free growth from there. Hmm. And finally, number 10, do tax-free saving account withdrawals get added back to my TFSA room? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Okay. So if you're putting your 52,000, and it's now worth 100000 you, you happen to do extremely well. You pick some great mutual funds or investments, and you took it all out, and you bought a high-end car. Well, that $100,000 is now your room. So you can actually replace that 100000 put it back in the TFSA January 1st the following year, mm-hmm. the whole 100000 <coughs> On top of that, you can put in the normal maximum, which currently is 5,500. So your room as of January 1st, the following, following year would be 100,000 and the 5,500. Hmm. So those are the ins and outs of some of the TFSAs. And bottom line, you should really talk to your financial planner to make sure you got the rules straight for yourself. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Okay, time for Yes, You Still Suck at Investing, part two. Part two. Oh, part, part one two. was last week. Right. Okay, kind of went through a little bit last week. And so for those listeners there that missed last week, you can always go on uh, online there. Yeah. And uh, pick up our old shows. Yeah, old archive shows on the website, andyanddon.com. So so that's great. But uh, what, what it was about basically in a nutshell is Dalbar, an independent service that looks at how investors actually do mm-hmm. and look at investors' performance rather than simply the performance. Because it's very misleading. What happens is you go to your institution or you look at a chart and says, well, the, the stock market has averaged 8% a year for the last 10 years. So 
that means everybody must be doing that. It turns out that they're usually doing about half of that rate. Mm. And the biggest cost is not what people think. There seems to be a lot of focus on the cost of investing right now. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, are you paying a 0.5% fee, a 1% fee? What's your advisor fee? Like, that's what all the attention on is on right now. And, you know, that is definitely part of it. No question. I'm not going to say it's not. Cost is important, but not as important as client behavior. Mm-hmm. Client behavior is costing people more money than anything. Mm. And hence the name, yes, you still suck at investing. <laughs> because... It's, mis- it's unbelievable. The average rate of return, as I mentioned on the last show, for 30 years was, for 30 years in the Standard & Poor's 500 was 10.35, yet the average investor in the funds did 3.66. Like, that's basically a third of the return. Mm-hmm. And there's no way no, anybody's charging them 7% a year for investment fees, yeah. okay? Maybe 2% tops. They should have at least gotten 8.35, but they're not even coming close. So again, what happens is is you start seeing, and, and, and the do-it-yourselfers do the worst. Okay, And males generally do seem to do worse than females. Hmm. They call it the testosterone effect. Really? Um, they love to say, kind of be in charge and, okay, I read this article, I'm moving it out of this, and, and what Trump's doing now should impact the military area because right. those stocks should be going up. And Trudeau made some laws about marijuana, so those stocks, but I don't know about the tobacco company. So they're getting all this information. You don't think the mutual fund managers haven't already figured this stuff out? Yeah. And don't you have a, a real job doing something else? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, good point. Okay. Like, it's absolutely insane that you're trying to manage your your all your money that you work day in, day out for and try and do it yourself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. So what happens in this is it's just an absolute truckload of emotions. So you start seeing the markets go up and uh, and there's some optimism. I'm going to do okay at this. And it goes up a bit. Oh, this is exciting. And you get into it. There's a yeah. euphoria. Yeah. And then you see it's it go up. It's almost like gambling. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it said, well, then there's this thrill and it's just going up. I look at it and, and what happens is, wow, look how smart I am. Mm-hmm. And you start telling your friends how smart you are. And there's this euphoric. And this is kind of like the tech boom back in 2000. Yeah. I don't know if I, for anybody who remembers it, but the stock market was going up, like the tech stocks going up like 10% a month. Yeah. Why the heck would you want to buy something that could go 10% a year? Mm-hmm. It was like there's this major party going on and you wanted to be part of it. Yeah. Well, then it goes down a bit. Oh, there's a little bit of anxiety, but don't worry. I'm a long-term investor. I'm going to put more in now. Yeah. Well, then it goes down a bit more. Eh, denial. It'll bounce back. Then it goes down a bit more. Well, it doesn't take long for people to remember 2008, 2009, when the market went down 30% mm-hmm. or more. And then all of a sudden, there's some desperation. Well, then, once there's that desperation, trust me, the newspapers are all over that. Yeah. And CNN and everything else. We used to call CNN constant negative news. Yeah. Okay. And panic sets in. And finally, despondency. And that despondency is actually rated to people actually having to take drugs mm-hmm. because they're actually have depression yeah, over this. Anxiety. Total anxiety attacks. <laughs> and at that point, people are saying, how could I have been so wrong? I sh- I'll never go in this ever again. Yeah. And often that's, uh, but when they yank out the money and say, I'm never going to, I'm going to go. And all of a sudden it starts to go back up a bit. Well, they're in a depression at that time. They're never going to buy into that at that time. And then there's, it goes up a bit more. Well, some hope might finally come back. And eventually it goes through the exact same patterns again of optimism, excitement, thrill, and euphoria. And a boy, am I smart again? And you're buying. And that is what happens to the investor psychology. And I've gone through this 
years and years and years, uh, 32 years, we've been through a few major uh, bear markets and also bull markets. So it ends up really affecting things. And your performance is the one that gets hit the hardest because you're doing the wrong thing. So here, the nine kind of steps is in your brain. You got this loss aversion. This is the fear of loss um, that people start to panic at the worst time, also known as panic selling. So that's loss aversion. And I know back in 2009, March 9th, I believe it was a low, I had two people want to sell on that day. Yeah. I had seven in total. Narrow framing, number two, making decisions about a part, part of their portfolio with, without looking at the bigger picture. They're just focused on the little area. Say, oh, the Canadian market's doing well and they put more money in there. They will ignore the US and everything else. Mm-hmm. Anchoring. <clears throat> Anchoring is the process of remaining focused on what happened previously and not adapting to the changing market. And Warren Buffett's a great example. He said, I'll never buy an, an airline company. Mm-hmm. In fact, I got a 1-800 number in case I ever think about buying an airline company. <laughs> well, he just finished buying four in the past six months hmm. and shares in them. So he's changing with the adapting market. Mental accounting, separating performance of investment me- investments mentally to justify success and failure. You're constantly trying to justify everything. And my, uh, I, I remember my prof in, in security said, the market's a random walk. Don't start putting patterns and everything to it. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing. Hmm. Lack of diversification, number five. Believing your portfolio is properly diversified when in fact it's highly correlated pool of assets. What that means is I've seen uh, clients and I look at their portfolio and they'll have like four or five funds say, look how well it's doing. I said, yeah, they're all the same ones. They're just yeah. different names on the top. Yeah. In fact, even the foreign funds were basically, they were foreign, but they're like 70% Canadian natural resources. Mm-hmm. And when the natural resources did well, they all did well. Uh, herding, following what everybody else is doing. It's kind of leading to the buy high, sell low theory. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you might see that in real estate right now a little bit. Mm-hmm. And of course, regret, media response, and then optimism, the end of the, at the end of the day, emotions hurt your portfolio. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Doing your homework before your home reno. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you're finding a lot of people doing this now because they're, should I stay in the house? Yeah. Or should I move? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I want a new kitchen. I want an addition. You know, the house is dated. Um, what should I do? And when they look at the difference, they, quite often they like the neighborhood and they really just don't want to move. Mm-hmm. They, they like the area. And that seems to be the biggest reason. Say kids are in the same schools. Yeah. And uh, then you got to pay the cost of land transfer tax and, mm-hmm. and a few other costs. And they say, ah, you know what? And moving alone is always a hassle. Yeah. So there is a lot of people doing home renovation work. But with that, there's also some very good home renovators and there's just like any place, yeah. there's some not so good home renovators. And you're seeing, especially in a boom kind of scenario right now, there's a lot of people I'm hearing a lot Everyone, of bad stories. Everyone's a real estate agent. Everyone's a home improver. You, you got it. Yeah. Absolutely. So it comes down to do your homework. And so when you take three, at least three estimates mm-hmm. and you look at all three and, and you say, okay, are, what are they covering? Are they making sure the contract's good? Um, you know, looking at 
the start date, estimated completion date. I always find it's always interesting how estimated that is. Yeah, but right. anyway, um, the payment schedule, proof of liability and workers' compensation insurance, mm-hmm. okay, which would also be good. Contingen- contingency plan, if the job increases in price. Mm. So what if we wanted more? You know what? Uh, we changed our mind halfway through. Yeah. And I'm sure that... That never happened. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Designing on the go. Yes. And even though an architect had some great plans, I did a, a major renovation back in 2000. It was interesting. My bedroom, they had a little walk off this way, um, walk-in closets, an ensuite, window. And when my renovator came in to look at it, he says, where are you putting the bed? There wasn't... <laughs> Not enough space. <laughs> there wasn't a wall. An area, yeah. It was... Everything was taken. Yeah. I said, oh. Right in the center of the room. Yeah, I get a round bed, <laughs> stick it in the middle. That's it. <laughs> so things do happen on the fly, but there should be a contingency plan if that happens. Um, and then once you have it narrowed down and you, and you feel comfortable, go ask for references. Mm-hmm. And, and I made a mistake. Okay, I'll tell you right now. 2001, uh, my architect gave me a, what was a very good, reputable company. And I had uh, two others. So it, and it was a toss-up between two. I even had my... Uh, a client that is in the business will take a look and he's retired says yeah this one looks really good so I went to references um, and they're great references the problem with the references is they were all about four or five years old oh, since right. the last renovation nothing was current hmm. and I never really picked up on that everybody just said how such a great job it was yeah. what I didn't know was the person that actually owned the company before was the person's father right. and the son took over right and uh, he went personally bankrupt while I was on the job with me. Mm. Okay. So if I had seen some current references, then that would have, uh, some red flags would have gone up. Yeah, yeah. And I actually drove to the houses, did everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was very picky on, on, on this renovation job and it turned out not the best thing. So yeah. even one small area that you thought you were covering everything, uh, you can get fooled. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you screen through that. There's a couple ways you can, charge you can have a a a cost what it's going to be okay and here's what it's going to be all in Mm -hmm. and that's really up to the contractor he's taking the risk yeah so he says this is it all in it's a hundred thousand dollars for this renovation Mm -hmm. and so at the end of the day you you get your bills paid you put your deposit you pay as you go and you're at the end of the day it's a hundred thousand dollars you have a little hold back at the end Mm -hmm. it's very common and uh, you make sure everything's done properly and you write a check and it's 100000 The other way is cost plus. Yeah. Now, all the risk is on the person that owns the house. Yeah. Now, not necessarily a bad way of going because if you're making a lot of changes on the fly- You're controlling it. You're paying for it. You're paying for it. You yeah. know what the costs are. You know is what the profit margin is. And you, you can kind of control it with that, but it's very easy to get out of hand on cost plus too because it's interesting as you're doing a renovation- as a, a, a client of mine said, you can up almost anything. Yeah. He, he was pointing, he said, look at that light fixture. Mm-hmm. You can get a better one. Yeah. You can look at floorboards oh, and yeah. there's 30 different ones of those. Oh, yeah. You can take an easy renovation and double the price and get the exact same renovation. Yep, yep. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to nickel and dine your way up and it doesn't seem like much. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Let's go with the six inch floorboards versus the four inch. Mm-hmm. And then you make another small decision. Next thing you know, it's like, wow, this renovation is cost way over budget. Yeah. And you should have moved. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> At the end of the day, yeah, moving is looking like a better idea. Yeah. Um, and renovating is... It's a bit of a hassle. It's a hassle. Yeah. There's stress to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I, I think uh, there was some. So ma- is moving though. But moving <clears throat> is too. Yeah. But I, I found there's uh, some marriage stats that suggest yeah. that renovating is a little more of a hassle. Yeah. Because you can at oh, least yeah. pay a mover and it's all done and you got to. Th- it's actually not a bad thing to purge. Yeah. Renovations, you actually get to keep all your old junk still. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it's actually a great way to sit down. One is is to look at not only the emotional decision, should I renovate or should I move, but also sit down with your financial planner, mm-hmm. okay? And say, okay, here are the costs. Here's your budget. Do you guys paint too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that part. But work through the budget. I didn't budget. know you were that good with a hammer. <laughs> what I do find, it's such an emotional thing buying a house or renovating yeah. anything um, that people often way overshoot their budget. Mm-hmm. And so you do have to get a bit of a firm line. And so sitting with a financial planner is like having that third person in there that will say, okay, here's what the extra cost will cost you. And here's what you can't do Mm -hmm. if you do this. Mm -hmm. And that vacation you say, well, you can't take a vacation for the next five years or your car's better last you. Mm -hmm. It'll show the other side. And I have even, I I know one person actually went personally bankrupt because they bit off too much they can chew. And the banks have no problem lending the money. Yeah. They offered. They offered way more than I would ever suggest. They never sat down with me, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, they told me after the fact of what they're doing and all the plans, the architect plans, everything was done. <laughs> I didn't get involved until all of a sudden I got this flag saying, "Help! What can you do? What should I do now?" I said, "You should have never done this." Yeah. And it's too late then. So again, another reason to sit down with your financial planner to go through pros of moving, pros of staying and renovating, and what is the maximum you should uh, cost in terms of your renovation. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.